So good afternoon, good morning. This is Mark Johnson from Loyalty360. Everyone's happy, safe, and well. I want to welcome you to another edition of our Loyalty360's Authors and Academia series. That's where we look at topics and trends that impact customer loyalty and brand loyalty from a unique lens to give an enhanced perspective on the industry. We love speaking with uh, those who are in academia who have penned uh, relevant books. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Manuel Prost, who's a senior vice president of brand health at Ipsos and is the author of a new book called Brand Hacks, How to Build Brands by Fulfilling the Consumer Quest for Meaning. Uh, so Dr. Prost, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate your time. Excited to connect with you and your community. Absolutely. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about Ipsos, what you do at Ipsos? Uh, and we also love you, uh, a personal uh, fun fact uh, and to know a little bit more about you as well. So maybe a little bit about your role at Ipsos and uh, you know, do you, living in LA, do you surf? Do you jump out of airplanes? What, what, what fun fact may you have, a passion that you may have? Yeah, thank you. Ipsos is the third largest market research firm in the world. And uh, Ipsos supports clients with their research efforts uh, throughout the research continuum. So it's a one-stop shop, full-service market research proposition. And at Ipsos, in particular, I um, specialize in brand health and counsel our clients with measuring, tracking, optimizing, predicting the performance of their brands and their marketing efforts. So that's what I do here. Okay. And fun uh, fact, well, I live in Los Angeles and I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Mark, but I don't surf because I'm scared of the sharks. Okay. Um, so I'm, <laughs> and, and neither do I jump from airplanes. However, um, I do love going to, to the beach in Malibu. We go almost every weekend and I really enjoy also the restaurant scene here in Los Angeles. I love fish. So it's a, a very good destination for that. And it's very pleasant to live in a place where it's 70 to 100 degrees all year round, let alone during uh, the pandemic. It was very good here. We oh, had it better than many people. Well, excellent. That's uh, that's good to hear. I, I and I don't surf either because I uh, I don't like cold water. My my every one of my family is uh, an amazing swimmer, but uh, I'm not a huge fan. So I share the uh, the, the no surfing thing with you for sure. <laughs> so in the book, you say that consumers have become almost insensitive to advertising. Can you explain what you mean by that and what what has led to this? And, and most importantly, how how can brands address that? Yeah, we are bombarded with advertising. Uh, we check our phones 83 times a day. We're just overwhelmed with media and technology. We post collectively about 43,000 pictures on Instagram every day. We are exposed to thousands and thousands of advertising messaging about us. Uh, when we go to the store in any given category, we have the choice between 150 different types of popcorn and another 400 types of breakfast cereals. All this is too overwhelming. And the starting point for the book is to say, let's take a pause, let's take a big step back as practitioners, not try to push our brands, our products down the throat of consumers, but understand what are these people trying to achieve? What's important to them? in their lives, because most people don't care about most brands. 
that's the reality. Most people don't care about most advertising. What we're trying to achieve, Mark, uh, especially this year, especially now, is comfort and coziness and being together and feeling safe. Uh, we also appeal to nostalgia, as an example, meaning because we are so overwhelmed with technology, we like to go back to a past that feels reassuring to us, and so on and so forth. So there are 10 meanings in the book that as consumers, as people, as human beings, we are trying to fulfill. And what I'm suggesting to do in this book is once you understand these meanings, what you understand, once you understand what people want to achieve, we build brands and products that fulfill these meanings, that are more meaningful. What this means to your audience in terms of loyalty is number one, we're going to be able to charge a premium. And number two, we are going to create brands and products that people want to stick with, that people want to come back to, because as you said in your introduction, we're creating this emotional bond between the band and the brand and the consumer. Okay. When you look at that, that's uh, obviously a great idea. Uh, I'm sure you're uh, very, very familiar with the paradox of choice by uh, Barry Schwartz, an amazing book, one of the best behavioral science books out there. Uh, you know, if you have a choice between 20 cookies, uh, you don't get the uh, satisfaction you know, with the dopamine rush. You don't get the engagement that you have with three, right? So more choice is not uh, always the best thing. But, you know, we are in this instant gratification. It's easy to create a uh, line extension for a brand, uh, especially a CPG company, right, to come up with Oreo flavored cookies and then come up with M&M flavored cookies and on down the line. But how do you change that mindset to focus on the strength of the product, the uniqueness of the product, being able to tailor that product? Because, you know, small is not always easy to uh, for CPG companies or brand companies or any companies to kind of focus on, right? Because they want big, they want mass. But, you know, getting to that small, that targeted, that un you know, unique niche product or service can be very powerful and rewarding, but it's hard to change that mindset, isn't it? It is. Um, I want to think you can almost do both. Here's my point. The big idea for your brand and the big idea for your product should be overarching. And this meaning, how your brand carries some purpose and values and fulfill meaning, that can happen across a very wide range of products. It doesn't matter how many flavors of Oreos you have on the shelf. What's important is what Oreo stands for. So if you take um, a brand like Nike has a very extensive product line, yet their purpose, their social responsibility, if you will, is um, strong as ever, right? So with that said, back to the paradox of choice, um, yes, and this is about to get worse, meaning not only when you have 20 cookies, at the end of the day, you don't pick any <laughs> because you're too overwhelmed, but uh, when you order for your voice assistant, like your Alexa device or your Google Home device, realistically, you can call on one, two or three options. Also, when you shop online, uh, you have less options visually available to you than you do at store level. Simple reason. Go to the store, you want to buy some popcorn, you're in front of that shelves with your eyes, you can see 150 kinds of popcorns, kinds of popcorn. If you're on Amazon.com, 
you're not going to scroll to page two. You'll be exposed to 10, 12 different brands maximum. So my point is technology is forcing us in a good way to fulfill this theory of Barry Schwartz, the paradox of choice, is forcing us in a good way to focus on two, three, four, five um, key SKUs and um, not to get distracted with extensive product lines. What works in retail, as an example, Mark, these days is smaller store footprints, okay? Who is doing well in retail? The likes of Kiehl's, the likes of Warby Parker, Casper. One, because they have an online to offline experience. But importantly, think about it this way. If your store is 200,000 square feet, you cannot deliver a personalized experience and you will never compete with Amazon on inventory anyway. So that goes back to the paradox of choice, right? You're better to have a smaller line and a more personal and emotional experience. Absolutely interesting. Um, but isn't some challenges too with, with Amazon, right? Because Amazon may not always have the best interest of the consumer in mind. If they're sh showing 12 products, right? That may be the ones that they have some sort of marketing agreement with and or they may be using first-party data or zero-party data to help target that, um, uh, which can be advantageous, right? Makes it creates some simplicity and, and uh, seamlessness then. But you know, sometimes they, they may not offer what's necessarily best for you, uh, much like, uh, you know, uh, an IRI or others may do at the point of sale, right? And they buy, know you buy Coke, so they're going to offer you Pepsi, but it may not be advantageous as well. But that's kind of the, the whole uh, traditional uh, you know, uh, product relationship in the past. And that's being disrupted as well, correct? Yeah. Amazon is inherently a lower funnel type of tool. It's a merchant. So in my view, just like Walmart is not going to help much building meaning for your brand at shelf um, shelf level, if you will. Amazon is not going to do a ton of its product placement. That's basically what we're looking at. And Amazon is strong, uh, is leading, is, is the beacon, if we, you will, in terms of customer experience, in terms of uh, lenient return policy, excellent supply chain delivery and all that. But my point is I don't see Amazon really as a place to build that emotional connections with Correct. consumers. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and at the end of the day, Amazon wants to build their brand. They want to continue to refine and enhance their brand. So there's that, that agency conflict that we all learned about in business school, right? So what may be best for Amazon may be not as good or be as beneficial to an aspiring brand, right? Because getting that message out through the, the clutter and, and messaging within Amazon, is going to be very difficult for that brand to do potentially. Absolutely. And as you suggested, it's paid placement. It's no different than paying for shelf space with Walmart, yeah. right? It's paid placement, cost promotion, upselling. Uh, and again, all these are, are good. Put it this way. All these are very good tactics to push products, right? And promotions. But they do little to nothing to yeah. help build that emotional connection and that brand halo effect that we need. Absolutely. So when you, uh, you write the brands, uh, the brands that succeed are the ones that help consumers find meaning. Can you define what meaning is and give some examples of brands that have been successful in, in that regard? Yeah. I will contrast meaning 
with a fad and a trend. So let me explain a fad is a diet because most diets are not sustainable. Diets usually are fads, right? We just cannot keep eating spinach every day for the rest of your life. That's why most people don't stick with their diet. That's a fad. A trend is something that is going to influence the market in the longer run, maybe for a few years, and a trend is going to see businesses built around it. So cross-training could be a trend. Uh, bootcamp gym studios, that's a trend, for example, whereby you have businesses built around this. Now, is that going to uh, last for for too long? We'll, we shall see. Meaning is something that is a lot more profound. Meaning is something that has an impact on your life in uh, the long run. So in the book, we're looking at personal, social, and cultural meanings. The personal meaning is what you do for yourself. Who do you want to become, right? And an example of a brand that does this well is Equinox Health Clubs. When they advertise, they tell you, Equinox made me do it. They tell you, commit to something. And the point is not to sell you access to fitness equipment, which Planet Fitness can do that for a tenth of the price. The point is to get you to commit to something and to fulfill, to provide you with a transformative experience of who you are today and who you are going to become by joining Equinox. So that's personal meaning. Social meaning is about our interactions with other people. And cultural meaning is about fulfilling our desire for things such as adventure. So Airbnb does this very well, whereby once again, Airbnb doesn't sell you a room. Nobody cares. Um, Marriott already has 11,000 hotel rooms around the world. We didn't need Airbnb to find a bed and chocolates on the pillow. What Airbnb is providing you is access to an experience, to live like a local, to experience the neighborhood, to experience the culture as such, Airbnb fulfills this meaning of discovery and adventure and even renewal. To summarize, Mark, the brand that succeeds at delivering meaning is about delivering this transformative experience. When I'm going to buy this brand, this product, as an outcome, I'm going to become a better person or, and or I'm going to be more connected to my friends and family, the people around me, and or I will be attuned to culture and the arts and beliefs around me. Okay. Uh, Brand Hacks it takes the reader on and an exploratory journey, uh, revealing why most advertising fails and examining uh, you know, the personal, social, cultural you know, meanings of successful brands uh, that are you know, part of the consumer's everyday lives. You know, you know, what led you to write the book and, and what can brands take from it? Yeah, what led me to write the book is obviously I read a lot of books and I, prior to COVID, would attend five to eight conferences a year and I love to learn from my peers. What, uh, with that said, I saw a gap between us practitioners being bubbled and talking to each other and an opportunity to um, turn the tables and start with the consumer and then build brands as opposed to doing what 99.99% of marketing books do. That is, 
we are marketers. How can we push more brands and more products down the throat of consumers? Right. That's what led me to write the book. But now let me be clear because I want to be humble here. Um, there are some outstanding marketing books out there that are inspirations for me. Uh, my point is I'm offering a read through a different lens. I'm proposing to look at consumption through the lens of consumer psychology. So it's a different approach. But uh, again, I want to stress that many other approaches are great. And this is an and, not an or approach, or not a but. Okay, good. Well, that, that, uh, that's uh, interesting as well. You know, when you look at uh, you know, brands who are trying to uh, you know, get placement or trying to get acceptance, you know, how, how can they use some of the simple brand hacks to create and grow that meaning that you talk about? Because meaning is, is, is very challenging for brands. I mean, even we talk to brands quite often that we have, we have weekly meetings with them on different topics and corporate social responsibility is an area of huge interest. But it's hard uh, to measure the efficacy of that, right? And everything's member is everything's based on measurement. Uh, a lot, many brands know they have to do uh, corporate, you know, corporately social responsible type offerings because it's something they need to do. Everyone else is doing them, but you know, it, some CFOs find them challenging because there's not a measurability on it, and it can be more expensive as well. I was talking with a large oil company yesterday. It was a member of Bullet 360, and you know they have just uh, sold off some of their uh, uh, you know uh, carbon-based uh, uh, you know assets, uh, moving in a different direction. Uh, but even he, he said he's like, we, we don't have an ROI on this, and it's very challenging to do. So you know how how do you create that brand that has uh, the meaning, uh, especially with a limited bu- a budget potentially? Yeah. Uh, and I almost hear three questions in what you said. Sorry. No, no worries. Um, first and foremost, brands, big or small, they must invest both in building the brand and in pushing products in the lower funnel. What is the difference is when we build the brand, it takes three to five years. So back to what you said about corporate social responsibility, it takes three to five years versus the beauty of Amazon is you can push product overnight. That said, you need both. As covered before, you don't build the brand on Amazon and conversely, brand building is not driving sales immediately. The second point is you spoke about corporate social responsibility. Um, Not all brands can jump on that bandwagon of brand purpose. It depends who you are and it depends what you have to promote. If you're Patagonia, REI, or National Geographic, you have a built-in purpose for those brands that's easy. If you're Starbucks, that becomes more difficult. And some brands just don't have a social mission, if you will, and maybe shouldn't try to adopt one. So my point is corporate social responsibility is expensive. It takes three to five years, and it's not for everyone. Brands that succeed, look at Apple, is advertising on privacy. Apple is making some great progress on privacy and security for their users. They've been at it since, what, for five years now. They have to advertise, they have to do some PR, they have Tim Cook pushing this. And last but not least, in the lower funnel, it translates at user level 
whereby when I want to download an app, Apple asks me if I want to share my data. So not everyone's Apple and corporate social responsibility is not for everyone and hardly can ever be implemented on a small budget. Your third question is about what are the hacks we can implement when we don't have a lot of money? And that's the beauty of the book is you have, I think, 120 hacks total, but we spoke about nostalgia, for example, using Neon is a very powerful way to um, attract customers to your store. Neon is nostalgia. Neon is meaningful because it's an old, very simple technology, yet it's very visually appealing. It is very Instagrammable. And for all the LED displays and avatars and everything you can do with technology, Neon is captivating because the light, if you will, shines like nothing else. Neon is also attractive both to your older consumers. For them, it has a nostalgic value maybe of their childhood and to younger customers one, because it's very Instagrammable. And number two, because even though they didn't live in the 70s, in the 60s, in the 80s, they like to reminisce about that time that maybe their parents and grandparents went through. That's also why Urban Outfitters sells T-shirts of Pulp Fiction. And it always makes me smile when I see my students, for example, with a, a, a T-shirt of, uh, from the movie Pulp Fiction, because the movie came out in 96. And obviously, most of my students were born, uh, I mean, past 2000, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think the last question I have is you know, personalization is, is very important uh, to brands. Uh, and I think brands traditionally have had a challenge kind of listening to and understanding their customers, but you're, you're advocating for a number of different things to help, uh, you know, address that. You know, how can brands, you know, personalize, create that engagement to, to talk to their audience about their story, about their purpose, about their mission, to create that meaningful engagement uh, in, in a personalized manner? Yeah. Personalization is the key, in my opinion, to cutting through the clutter. We spoke about too much advertising. If a message is relevant to me, I'm way more likely to respond. We see this with newsletters. Very few people unsubscribe from newsletters. If um, the brand reaches out to me with something that is meaningful and purposeful to me, mm-hmm. I will consume the content and respond and engage with the brand. Now to your question. I value you a very small brand. You don't have a lot of money. Personalization means don't fall off your chair, but literally writing personal emails, writing, if you're a high-end store, if you're in retail, writing thank you cards by hand. Hey, it takes time, but it costs, it's just labor. It doesn't cost anything else. And it goes such a long way when you receive a handwritten. I know it sounds very old-fashioned. but oh, I agree. It's very powerful. Um, so if you operate a small store on off-peak hours when uh, it's Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. and no one's in the store, you grab a pile of thank you cards and or at the very least you send a personal email to your clients. Uh, if you're a small fitness studio, you should do that too. You get my, my idea. Yeah. And you engage, you relate to people. Ideally, if you have time, I know that sounds 
like a lot of work, but connect with them on something they like to do, just like you did at the beginning of this interview, Mark, on what I like to do in Los Angeles. If you're a big brand, you invest in collecting first-party data, data that you're going to own. That means you're going to learn as much as you can about your consumers for your website, for all your touch points, and you're going to analyze all this data to uh, sell them farther down the line a product that's most relevant to them. So, Mark, you have a beard, and if you buy your blades at Costco, Gillette doesn't know, know anything about you. Right. However, if you were to buy your blades at Dollar Shave Club of Harry's, Harry's now knows how often you shave. Harry's is going to know that maybe you would like a moisturizer for your beard. Maybe you would like something here for your goatee, your mustache. Um, yeah. And that's how we're going to cross-sell and upsell products that are more relevant to you that we're going to offer to you at the time of need, when you need them, and in a much more coherent fashion that if all of a sudden I was going to try to market something to you for people who are bold, because you're not bold. <laughs> Absolutely. Good point. Now, I think that using data in a meaningful way is important. Uh, getting the more game of guide opportunities with zero-party data, right? Creating that unique engagement you, you talked about creating that, 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 that powerful connection. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting to hear, uh, you know, what your thoughts are. I've started the book about halfway through and look forward to continuing it. Um, uh, and so it's been great, Emmanuel, having a, the chance to speak with you. And I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate your time. And thank you to our listeners today. Absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening. Uh, join us back for another edition of our Authors and Academics series soon. Have a wonderful day.